I want to invite you to turn your Bibles now as we look to the Word of God in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 through 17 is our text today. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 through 17 as we continue our series in Peter. As Peter writes in this epistle to those who are scattered about Asia Minor, those who have been persecuted, those who have had difficulties in their lives, and he encourages them in how to handle suffering when they do good. When we live a righteous life, how are we to handle suffering? First Peter in the New Testament, as Peter the Apostle writes here, chapter 3, verse 13. He writes, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Let's bow and come before the Lord before we begin our study again this morning. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word which endures forever. For the grass withers and the flowers will fade. Our God, we pray that your word would be divided rightly. We would be teachable and that you would fill us, Father, fill our minds with your thoughts and our hearts with your truth. May we treasure it and, Father, may we follow it for your glory and your name's sake. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Last Friday, those of you who were at our prayer fellowship know that a man named Kirkula Pelkey came to share. He was a young Liberian man who had just finished at Multnomah, Multnomah School of the Bible or Biblical College. He was the second, second child in a family of nine children. But at the age of four, when he was just four years old, war broke out all over Liberia. His father abandoned the family during the Civil War. His mother had to gather food. They were driven to the jungle in order to grow their own food and to hide from the rebels. His mother passed away during that time. And were it not, were it not for a soldier who took the butt of his rifle and hit him in the leg, causing his leg to be dislocated, he too would have been recruited as a child soldier. Child soldiers who were as young as seven years old, taken away from their families to fight in the Civil War along with the rest of his friends. He was spared from that, but he had no parents, and he had to take care of his other siblings. On the day that he and his siblings were taken to an orphanage, half a dozen of them, some of them had been split up. He arrived at the same time as a Christian journalist who was there to take pictures and he took pictures of he and his other siblings 
That Christian journalist had gone to Liberia. That Christian journalist returned to the States and God worked in his heart to share with his wife and they had no children and they, they decided that they wanted to adopt some of them. But because they couldn't adopt all six, they talked with their other family members and their other family members decided that they too wanted to save these children who had no parents out of a war-torn country. And so they adopted all of them and they came. And the family lives in southern Washington State. So he came to share with us about how he had grown up as a child of war, how he had seen violence and immorality, the worst that humanity had to offer, killing of people and how children were brainwashed and how there was destruction all over the place. But it wasn't the fact that He showed us pictures and told us testimonies of his war-torn country that perhaps impressed me the, the most. But it was the fact that he wanted to return to a country like that. And he sat at our table, those of you who were there, and he said, I can completely understand. He said, I can totally understand if people come to America and they don't want to go back because there is nothing over there. It's nice, it's comfortable here, but over there there's just suffering and poverty But I know, he said, I know God wants me to go back to minister to the child prostitutes, to the widows, to the orphans. You see, his future is not going to be easy at all. His future is not going to be comfortable. And he won't live near any of the means of most Americans because he won't have even perhaps basic necessities like running water. In a country in which there is over 80% unemployment there, the people scavenge for food and it's not very plentiful. But because he shared the love of God has driven him to be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ and the gospel is why he wants to return. And perhaps the Lord has in for him some future that is going to be very difficult. Perhaps it will be persecution. Perhaps it will be that he will go back to his home country to die. These people that Peter writes to know what it's like to be in that kind of situation where they are going to live and going to die for their faith because Peter writes to them in a period of time in which Nero had begun or had ended his persecution of Christians and yet throughout the the area of Asia Minor there was still persecution of Christians going on and he's addressing this very issue of how are they to act when times are difficult, when you take a stand for your faith, how are they to conduct themselves? And this whole section stems back to chapter 2, verse 12, which says, Peter says, keep your behavior, what? Excellent. Excellent among the Gentiles so that when they see your good behavior and when the day of visitation comes, meaning the day that they come to know Jesus as their Savior, they will glorify their Father in heaven. And he continues in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 about how they're conducting themselves. How are they to respond to the government? When the government might be against them, how are they to respond to their employer When their employer is not the most kind individual, perhaps even mean. How are they to respond in family life? And then he summarizes everything and says, Look, let all be harmonious, verse 8 of chapter 3. Sympathetic, brotherly, and kind-hearted. And he says in verse 10, If one desires life, you want to have a good life, 
You want to see good days in your life, then what? Turn from evil and do good, do what's right. Seek peace and pursue it. But then he comes to chapter 3, verse 13. And he says, when you do these good things to live a good life, sometimes people aren't going to respond. Sometimes people aren't going to respond to you. So he tells you, tells us what? Tells us a half a dozen things that we're to do in order to be able to handle it. When you suffer because you're a Christian, you say at work, I'm a Christian. You say at school, I'm a Christian. And people may not respond positively towards you. How are you to respond when you're mistreated because of your faith? first thing that he says in verse 13 is to remember that you're blessed. You are blessed when people treat you poorly for the sake of righteousness. He says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what's good? Verse 13. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. So generally speaking, Peter says, people will not treat you poorly if you're excited to do what's good. You want to do something good, most people aren't going to treat you poorly before that. But he knows it's not true of everybody because he says, look, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Remember that you're blessed. Now, all of us have been through school. And some of you have been through public school. Or maybe you've had a friend, or maybe you have neighborhood kids, or maybe even a brother or sister, and you know that when you hung around some of those times, there are times when you were growing up when your brother or sister, maybe it's even you, did something that was really bad. And your friends did something bad, and so what? So what did they do? Well, they did something bad. They wouldn't want to tell anybody about that. They wouldn't want to tell anybody what they did. And, but you saw them do it. And if you were to tell on them, what would you be called? You'd be called what? A snitch? You'd be called a tattletale? You'd be called a big mouth or a narc or any number of names. And so this so-called friend is likely to retaliate or maybe get you in trouble or ignore you or badmouth you. Maybe even beat you up. And it doesn't stop when you're young. You know, when you get a job and if somebody, an employer was doing something that was unethical. And if you were going to do something uh, like expose the practices that they have in your business, then you'd be called what? You'd be called maybe a discontent, a malcontent employee, a whistleblower. You might lose your job. And it doesn't end there. If you're a witness, if you're a witness to some violent crime or you give testimony against an enemy of the state or organized crime, you're very well being. Your family could be in danger. That's why they have witness protection programs. But Peter says here, when those times happen, when you say, do something and you say something because you're a Christian, you know it's the right thing to do, remember that you're blessed. Because Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you and they persecute you and they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You're blessed. You're blessed because you are doing what is right. You're blessed by God. I remember reading about Pastor Chuck Mahoney. He's a pastor of an Orthodox Presbyterian Church in the Sunset District of San Francisco for over 20 years. And he wrote the book, uh, When the Wicked Sees the City. And his home, his home as a pastor has been firebombed and his children sleep in a bedroom that's been built like a, like a bunker. But even though he's under the threat 
by militant attacks. He still has a heart. He has a heart to serve people with AIDS. And he stands there and he tells them the gospel and the only hope that they have when they're going to die of AIDS. He's blessed to carry that good news to them. Peter reminds them of that. He reminds them, secondly, that they're not to be afraid. Don't fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled. I mean, the greatest thing that keeps people from doing what is right is fear, isn't it? It's your fear. How are people going to look at me? How are people going to treat me? How are they going to, how are they going to uh, view me? I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. How am I going to pay for my rent, for my utilities? How am I going to put food on the table? Fear of what others might do to you. Fear of retaliation. Fear of, of losing what you have. We call it biblically the fear of man because, and that's what troubles us and that oftentimes drives us and yet we have more fear of man than we do the fear of God. Today, one of the most notable things in the news recently is the subject of bullying, harassment on YouTube or MySpace or gossip websites where there's verbal abuse and bullying that comes and it's been on TV and the news about various people unless you think that that comes mostly from guys or from men or whoever it's interesting because in a Chicago Tribune magazine article entitled Tough Cookies dated just last July it read quote girls girls according to a 2006 Clemson University study are nearly twice as likely to bully or be bullied electronically than boys. Bullying by way of personal websites, emails, text messaging, or cell phone calls. Another long-term study showed girls are responsible for 61% of reported in-person bullying incidences. Making matters worse, physical violence, once the domain of boys, has thoroughly infiltrated girl culture. The U.S. Department of Justice reports that between 1992 and 2003, the number of girls arrested for assault rose 41%. Among the boys, the increase was 4.3%, one-tenth of the amount. See, people use threats and intimidation to get what they selfishly want. And they prey upon the fears of others so that they won't do what is the right thing to do. They tell them that they're going to hurt them. They blackmail them, tell them that they're going to expose some information about them. They threaten to divorce them. They tell them that they're going to hurt their parents, that they're going to hurt their siblings or even kill them if they don't comply with what they want. And so they prey on the fears of others. We're not to be afraid. As Jesus said, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear Him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10.28 so if you're not even fearful of dying for your faith and giving your life for that, then it will make it easier to live for your faith. So when you're faced with doing something that is right, doing something that is true, remember you're blessed and remember not to be afraid. And thirdly, Peter says here to make Jesus supreme in your heart. Make Jesus supreme in your heart. He says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. To sanctify means to set apart. That's what it means. To sanctify means to set apart. Not only to set him apart, but set him apart as Lord. 
And we affirm His Lordship that God is in control of the situation. That person doesn't control your life. God controls them. And God will work all things for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So if we lose our well-being, if we lose our job or whatever it might be, what a blessing it is to do what is right because God is in control. One house church leader in China imprisoned for his faith said, Before prison we heard about God, but in prison we experienced God. Unquote. You see, suffering turns our eyes upon God, doesn't it? We beg of God. We turn to God because we have nowhere else to turn. We come to God and sometimes God uses suffering so that our eyes will be turned upon Him. And He says, make Christ Lord in your hearts. Pastor Nobel Alexander, who is imprisoned in Cuba for 22 years, wrote or said, In spite of the painful reflections and memories, I have no time for bitterness. 22 years. Can you imagine that? My life is filled, he said, with too much happiness, too many loving, caring people to allow myself to be devoured by the cancer of hate. I rejoice, I sing, I laugh, I celebrate because I know that my God reigns supreme over all of the forces of evil and destruction Satan has ever devised. And best of all, my God reigns supreme in me. Unquote. When God reigns in the heart, then the idol of hatred and resentment and bitterness can't take its place. So make Christ supreme in one's heart, Peter says. He says, fourthly, be ready to defend your faith with gentleness and with reverence. Always being ready, verse 15, to make a defense to everyone who asks of you to give an account for the hope that is in you. With gentleness and with reverence. The word defense there is a word from which we get the word apologetics, which means the, the Christian discipline or the Christian area of study, which means how to defend your faith. Do you know how to defend your faith? Can you defend what you believe? When we have difficulties with other people and we have a hard time, they may ask us, what do you believe about? Why do you do what you do? And you know what? You look at suffering and that's an opportunity That's an opportunity to share the hope that is in your heart. It's an opportunity. Likely the person might not be a Christian, but it's an opportunity to share with them why you do what you do. Why are you doing what's right when it's going to be bad for the company? Why are you doing what's right when things will not go well with you? Be prepared to share the hope that is in you. That's why it's so critical, you see, to study and to remember and to treasure the Word of God because it teaches us how to defend our faith. It gives us a reason to defend our faith because defending your faith is not my job to defend your faith. It's not my job nor your Sunday school teacher's job. The text says, whom is it directed to? To everyone who asks of you. You. They're going to ask you, why do you believe what you believe? They're going to ask you, and the responsibility is on you. I'm not you, you're you. And we need to know what we believe. And that's why there's Bible study, that's why there's Sunday school, that's why there are small groups, that's why there's materials we can buy so we can study to equip ourselves so we can answer people when they ask us why we believe what we believe. And when we do, we're to do it with gentleness and reverence, it says... 
with the attitude of gentleness and reverence. Recently, someone asked me, because we were at a conference together, an apologetics kind of a conference, and one or more of the speakers was rather, rather abrasive. And frankly, I was a little bit put off as well. And they asked about that because when we, when we defend our faith, how do we come across? Because that may not be very effective. And frankly, like I shared with you, I was a little bit put off as well. When we defend our faith, the Bible doesn't say uh, to be pugilistic or to be caustic or abrasive. It doesn't say to be sarcastic, to ridicule them, to be scathing. It doesn't say to be angry and to just tear them down. It says with gentleness and reverence. Because we're answering the question from somebody who has a question about our faith. We're not talking about when we give reasons to somebody who is a false teacher or false teaching and we're countering that. Because sometimes when you look in the text, Jesus talks about the Pharisees in very black and white, in-your-face terms. And so does Paul and so does Peter and so does Jude who reflects upon these false teachers. But for somebody who asks of you, why do you do what you do? Why do you believe what you believe? You share in a way that is well-received. An apt answer to someone who has a question with gentleness and reverence. So remember, we're blessed. Don't be afraid. Christ is Lord and in control and we have to give an answer. And fifthly, we keep a good conscience. We keep a good conscience. So at the thing it says in verse 16, in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. See, your your conscience is a guide. It's a guide. That's how the conscience works. It's like the nervous system is to the body. The conscience is to the soul. But you see, your conscience is not God either. Your conscience is not God because a conscience can be misguided, can be misinformed, can be misled. And so a conscience may not be sensitive to the things that it ought to be sensitive by. But when a person is a Christian and they learn what is true, their conscience is well informed, they're taught, their conscience is is going to be a guide as the Spirit of God uses their conscience in one's heart to guide them. That's why you have Christians who have disagreements. Because maybe it's their background that has trained their conscience to be sensitive in a particular area. Maybe they came out of a very legalistic background in which certain things or activities might violate their conscience. And yet that may be a misinformed conscience. Whereas another believer might have freedom in certain areas. And that's why there is disagreement sometimes over areas of conscience that are not clearly spelled out in the Bible. But whatever it is, it says to keep a good conscience To keep a good conscience. And we study the Word of God so our consciences can be informed by the Word of God. To keep a good conscience in the way that we behave. And sixthly, remember that persecution, persecution and suffering for your faith is a part of God's will. It is a part of God's will. For it is better, it says in verse 17, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than what's wrong. See, God is a sovereign God. And in Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things, not some things, not most things, all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose One of God's purposes sometimes might be to be a testimony 
to that person who's not a Christian. To be a witness to others. To inspire others to do what's right, perhaps. That others will turn. Maybe it's a testimony simply testifying of God's grace. Whatever it is, God is a God who is in control. It is the most comforting of all the attributes of God, I believe. There's no comfort when one's suffering for doing what's wrong. You see, this passage isn't talking about when you run the next red light that you have and you get a ticket and you say, oh, I'm suffering. It is not when you're talking about your health because you've abused your body and you say, oh, I'm suffering. Oh, I'm not talking about when you've lost your job because you've committed a crime at work. It's talking about suffering for doing what is right. What is right God's sight. And God will be glorified because it is part of God's will that we suffer for doing what is right at times when God has ordained it to come to pass. Martin Luther wrote, If we consider the greatness of the glory of the life we shall have when we have risen from the dead. In other words, if we think about heaven and the glory that's to come, It would not be difficult at all for us to bear the concerns of this world. If I believe the word, I shall on the last day, after the sentence has been pronounced, not only gladly have suffered ordinary temptations, insults and imprisonment, but I shall also say, oh, that I did not throw myself under the feet of all the godless for the sake of the great glory which I now see revealed and which has come to me through the merit of Christ. The perspective on eternity, the perspective on eternity and the reward to come will bear you through difficult times because of your faith. Isaiah 48.10 hangs in the wall or hung on the wall of Charles Spurgeon's plaque there on his bedroom. It says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Affliction comes and suffering comes when we stand for our faith because it says in the epistles, what? For all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I listened to a friend recently who shared with me and who expressed their sentiment that they would rather go someplace and suffer for the sake of the gospel to live with a difficult life because to do so for the sake of Christ because God has called them without the trappings of materialism for the sake of the gospel there is greater satisfaction of the soul. Because we live in a life of oftentimes frivolity. And we spend our time not redeeming it for things that matter for eternity. And the time that we spend, the things that we invest ourselves in, how much will they be and what does God care when we evaluate the things that we do? How do we spend our time? How do we live our life? Do we live it for eternity or are we going to live it a wasted life? A life that was not lived for God. And suffering is a part of that Suffering is a part of that. And Peter tells us when we do that, we stand up for our faith in Jesus. And we say, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. Or I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't say such things because I find it offensive. I'm a Christian in a nice way. Or people ask you, why do you believe what you believe? Well, I do what I do because, you know, God is a part of my life. I go to church on the weekends and I worship God and... You know, would you like, do you know God? Do you go to church at all? 
And we share our testimony in a gentle and persuasive way because we care about their soul. I talked with somebody just yesterday about their, their parent who is going to die in the next day or two. And we were just, believe it or not, rejoicing because he had come to know the Savior just the week prior. And we rejoiced because it was because of the sacrifice of others that had brought the gospel to his father. And now we have a hope. And we have a hope that others can share as well. And that's the hope that, that Kirkula shared with us on Friday. Sure, there's nothing in that country. He's not going to become rich. He's going to live in a village, most likely, pumping water from a well, living among all of these people, some who might even kill him. But why? It's because it is worth it. When one decides, you know what, I'm a Christian, and a Christian is going to live like this. A Christian is going to follow God. They will know the joy that comes when suffering comes, that we might share, as Paul writes, in his suffering and know the power of his resurrection when we follow God. As one Vietnamese pastor who was imprisoned for his faith said, quote, We have learned that suffering is not the worst thing in the world. Disobedience is. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how fearful we are often of people, what people think, what people may do. We say to ourselves, oh, I don't want to offend. I don't want to turn them away. And we fear perhaps even people who are close to us, so we never share. We pray, God, that you would help us to have courage to be people who will stand For it is true, people who will live for you, people who will be impassioned by your truth, may it drive us to obedience for your glory and your name's sake. Amen.